I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Gene, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Hi, everybody. I'm very excited to have added another father to the podcast today. I think you're going to have your hand on your heart while this man talks about his experience as a father to his son, Luke, who was born with a rare disease called Menkes. I could listen to Daniel all day. We have a lot to learn from his perspective for sure. He is a contributing author to The Mighty, and I highly recommend you find his pieces on there and on Facebook. His writing is so vulnerable. It's, it's so beautiful. He is also the co-founder of the Rare Disease Film Festival, which is so awesome. It began in 2015, and they have an upcoming event uh, this May in New York City, so check it out. You've probably no doubt seen some of the shorts floating around on Facebook that were a part of his festivals. I'm so excited, so let's just get started. Here's my new friend, Daniel DeFabio. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Effie. How are you today? I'm good. I'm so glad to be with you. I've been looking forward to this. I am so excited that you are here, too. And thank you for finding me on Instagram and agreeing to speak with me. I found you at the perfect time. You were literally the voice in the darkness to guide me through one of my dark days in a hospital. The hospital hair don't care episode. Yeah. Yeah. Survival <laughs> tips for the hospital came up. I was at three in the morning trying to sleep alongside my son, Lucas, while he was in the hospital. And I was not having much luck sleeping. So I decided to try some podcasts and there was yours and it was perfect. Can I ask how you found that episode exactly? Just searching keywords in podcasts? I think you had already liked something of mine on Instagram. So I knew about, you know, your podcast by name. And as I looked for episode descriptions, I saw like hospital, you know, as a topic, this is just too timely. This is perfect. <laughs> you would probably have a lot of really good information to add to that list that I promise I'm going to make. Yes, we should do it so people can <laughs> laminate it and carry it with them for every hospital stay. Yes, we totally should. And it's been on my mind and I just got to get it done. So, yeah. So anyways, I met you around Christmas time. You messaged me and you had been in the hospital for a month or so with your son, Luke. Can you tell us a little bit about your beautiful son, Luke? Yeah. Uh, the good news is he's now just turned 11. So we've been dealing with this rare disease journey for 10 years. He was diagnosed at age one. It's unfortunate. Um, well, of course, you know, any rare disease is unfortunate, but it's unfortunate that had he been diagnosed immediately at birth, you know, he could have had a very different outcome. He could have had almost symptom free kind of path. So Menke's disease is an interesting example of uh, how important early detection can be. And that's one of the reasons I try to be so vocal and raise awareness on it. If you're treated in the first 10 days of life, you can be spared almost all of the symptoms. But Lucas wasn't. Even though he spent the first 10 days of his life in a NICU for something that seemed unrelated at the time, it was a skull fracture. So it was a pretty easy birth for him, uh, for his mother to have him. 
but uh, there was a skull fracture and that meant all kinds of specialists like neurology and stuff were looking at him and he was in a NICU for the first 10 days. And even so, nobody, you know, Menkes is just so unknown that nobody thought to look down that line of, you know, research and questioning and testing. So what does it entail to actually get the diagnosis? Is this something that they could have done a simple blood draw for had they thought of Menkes? Yeah, it, it's actually pretty easy to to spot Menkes if you know to look for it. You could do things like um, check the hair under a microscope. And if you discover that it's got this, uh, I think it's called peely torti, you know, twisted hair, that's a pretty strong indicator because Menkes is also called kinky hair syndrome. And then a blood draw can tell you that the copper levels are high, you know, there's ceruloplasm levels that can be an indicator. And you take all those things together and ultimately you really do want a genetic scan. But if, if you have these sort of easier indications, then, you know, these were the, this was 2000, um, nine. So the full exome scan and full genome scan was still kind of expensive back then. But if you knew what you were looking for, then you just go scanning for try. So let's see if there's anything abnormal with the ATP 7A gene. And oh, there is. That's Menke's disease. So what is Menke's disease exactly? If you have a mutation in your ATP 7A gene, you're not going to create the protein that transports copper. And most of us do just fine with the amount of copper in our diet. And it's, it's really not a problem for most people, but too much copper and you can get Wilson's disease and too little copper and you get Menke's disease. And, you know, I got a crash course in the uh, benefits of copper after this. And, you know, I was going to say you hear a lot about iron, but you don't hear anything about copper, right? You don't need much of it. You know, if you're a regular healthy person, but you need it to develop your brain and your muscle and your hair. And, and those are all some pretty important things. So Lucas has very, very low muscle tone. I mean, he can, he can move his legs and feet and, and hands and arms a little bit, but not with any control. So he can't sit even at the age of 11 now, or, but from, from the earliest you know, babyhood till now, can't sit unassisted. One of the signs we saw of a regression was he was able to roll side, you know, stomach to side or back to stomach. And then he sort of lost that ability at about eight months. And that was one of the big warning signs that um, we needed to be looking for some kind of diagnosis. So you had just noticed that Luke wasn't hitting milestones and it took a year to finally. Exactly. It was we had a, uh, in terms of a diagnostic journey, we were pretty lucky. It was it was very short for us. At four months, he missed some milestones and we thought, well, he had that head trauma when he was a newborn and he was born two weeks early. So maybe he's just sort of recovering from that. And that's why he's missing milestones. And that could have been a little bit of denial on our part or optimism on our part. But then at eight months, when he actually regressed, we kicked it into gear and we saw a geneticist and and luckily that geneticist as rare as this disease is had seen other cases of Menkes. so for the first part of the office visit he might not have been too certain but as soon as he looked at lucas's hair he's like okay we're going to be looking into copper and then that's all he said right and a couple of months later he came back with a definitive diagnosis. But in the meantime, of course, I got on Google and what is copper going to create? Oh, it's either Wilson's or Menke's. And then you start rooting for Wilson's because you can live a longer life with Wilson. But it wasn't. So if it's so simple to notice and pretty uh, affordable, it sounds like, 
to find out within the next 10 days. Has there been any movement on trying to get this part of like the newborn screening? Especially if it's so life altering and it's a degenerative disease. Yes, absolutely. And just in the last year, there's been a lot of progress on that point, thanks to the Menkes Foundation, who I can't say enough good things about them. A newborn screening, thanks to their efforts, is now you know 99 point something percent accurate. It's in six states already on the RUSP, the required universal screening. But, you know, once you get that, you have to go state by state. And actually, Menkes Foundation is working now with the Every Life Foundation to, to get this on not just six or seven states, but all 50 states, because everyone who hears this story says, this is the perfect candidate of a disease that needs early diagnosis because there's such an effective treatment once you know it. So what is the treatment if they find it within these first few days? How simple is it? It sounds so simple. It's, it's, it sounds crazy simple. You inject copper into the body. And for some people, some boys who, it's almost always boys that have this. If you can process copper at all, increasing the amount of copper available in the system just increases the opportunities, right? And the reason we say the first 10 days is because so much development is happening in that time to be starved of copper at that time is, is critical. So if you can supplement the copper and maybe someone like Lucas is absorbing 15% of the normal amount of copper, well, if there's more copper available, you've got a better fighting chance at that, right? Dang, that is so simple. It's almost infuriating. Yeah. The reason you need that protein to transport copper is it has to get across the blood-brain barrier. And that Without, if you had zero functioning from your ATP 7A gene, you wouldn't get it. It wouldn't cross the barrier. You would just accumulate that added copper in your kidneys and it would do damage there. And that's why the clinical trial we were a part of, even though we were technically, I guess, too late to be really effective participants, Lucas entered that trial at age one. And the protocol for that was to last three years because after three years, the accumulated copper can be as much damaging as helpful, meaning the damage to your kidneys and bladder and things like that. That's really cool that you were able to be in that study anyways. It's definitely probably brought something good out of it, even if it's too late. Yeah, I've struggled with what a clinical trial can mean. At least you get the satisfaction of feeling you've tried everything, you've exhausted every possibility medical science has to offer. And Without that, you can feel very much more frustrated probably than my family was. So the treatment of the copper injections may have helped. You know, Lucas does seem to do better than some other Menkes kids that I know, but technically it should not have been effective. So maybe it wasn't. Maybe he's just, uh, there's so many variations within a mutation. So you can't really account for why one kid has worse symptoms than another. Sure. The spectrum again for all of these rare diseases. So when you get a diagnosis like this, I mean, it's heavy. It's as heavy as it can get, really. What do, let's see, how has this information been sort of a gift and a challenge for your family? And like, what philosophy have you chosen to live by from it, if any? <laughs> yeah, I wrote a piece on The Mighty. It was my first coming out as a rare disease person and, and eventually, I guess, an advocate. And it was called How Parenting a Dying Child Has Changed All Our Expectations. And you realize you go through grief, of course. You've got this diagnosis that says limited lifespan. You know, it's, it's like a death sentence. And so you come through that grieving process and 
if you're lucky, I think you realize that what you're grieving is this expectation of what you thought you were going to have, what you thought a normal, healthy child was going to be. And that's not what we got. We got something different for most people. I think it would take a considerable amount of time and thought to get to the other side of that. That is, this is bad, but it's not 100% bad. There's going to be good here still. And you can say it's a death sentence, but it's not tomorrow's death sentence. You're going to have some amount of life here together with this child. And then how do you want to live that life? And so any philosophy or wisdom I've gained from this, I think, starts to sound like these well-worn adages that we already know, like, you know, concentrate on the here and now, live for the moment, all those things that probably everybody already knows. But when you really live it, when it's thrust upon you and you feel like you have no choice, then I think you can embrace it a little bit more. I mean, you kind of have no choice. Yes. I love your blog, Daniel, and I'll definitely link it in our show notes. It's amazing. I was just rereading one the other day. I think it was the visit that you were at in December when I spoke to you and you said something about Luke getting oxygen and you said, how could something lighter than air weigh down so heavily on you? Yeah, it's not just a turn of a phrase. I think it was crushing for my wife and I. We had had a nice stretch of about four years of no emergency hospital visits. So this was, this was a tough one to, to be brought back into that sort of crisis mode. And, and then it's, it's such a little thing to add to his care, you know, to, oh, now you need to do oxygen. But it just brought up all these issues. It was an instigating moment to make us sign the DNR paperwork. And we had always, for years, known that we didn't want any extraordinary measures. We wanted quality of life, not quantity of life. But just because we had said that, agreed upon that, and that was our approach, didn't mean we were really ready for the simple formality of signing a document. And I don't know, everything came crashing down on us again. You know, the reality of the situation, which I think we get into these uh, grooves of coping pretty well, you know, yes. you adapt to whatever your new normal is and, and you keep your head above water. So that's as good as it gets. And you're pretty content with it. And you're starting to enjoy your day to day again. And then some little whammy comes along and you realize that you were just barely keeping it together and you didn't <laughs> need one more thing to be, you know, so like I said, oxygen should not be that big an issue. Plenty of people are on oxygen. But for us, it, it just, it knocked us off our delicate balance, you know? Sure. It's, it's, it's a tightrope. Caregiving is a tightrope. Yeah. So what have you found uh, that you have needed to do to sort of prevent or help you when you're having some sort of caregiver burnout situation? Like what have been some of your outlets? Oh, I, I, I think I need more of those. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all do. Yeah. Once in a while, we actually, my wife and I have a date night or a, a night without kids or, you know, and that, that can help. I find, you know, the, writing the blog or making a film or any kind of sort of public venting of where I'm at can be a relief and, and, and also a way to double check myself. You know, is this self-pity right now that I'm feeling or is this a real crisis or has everyone gone through this or 
you know, then you hear back from some people and maybe comments or friends that check back in and they say, you know, I've been wondering what's been going on and I know you're going through this and, and you can sort of just recalibrate yourself a little bit when you hear back from people, what they think of what you're going through. Yeah. I mean, I really believe that it's so important for us to talk about this, even if it is self-pity or whatever it is, I think opening the door for others to relate or others to feel comfortable to ask questions. I think we have to do it. Yeah. I I think even if you weren't trying to advocate for your own child or for others, you know, to where more information is better, right? More openness and transparency is always better. Even if that is not your motive, like you said, the, the sharing part of it, the opening up your personal struggle if if you're comfortable doing that kind of thing, is so worth it because only then can people be actually helpful to you. I mean, nobody wants to be a part of this club. It's a horrible rare disease club to be in. But once you're in it, you realize how many amazing people are out there and either because they're going through something similar or maybe it's not so similar. Maybe it's not a rare disease. It's just a, a parent aging or something. But when you tell your struggle it's much more likely that other people will share with you on that deeper, truer level of what they're facing. And, you know, again, it's one of those well-worn phrases that says everybody is going through a struggle you can't even imagine. Yes. We can't just wallow in these stories, but let's, let's be open to them. Let's not be afraid to tell each other how tough it is sometimes. Yeah, especially if you feel like maybe you're the only one who has this horrible thought and you say it out loud and other people feel the same way. I mean, it's a release. Definitely. And I sometimes talking to the rare disease parents I know is, you know, you can get into gallows humor or whatever that nobody else would go there <laughs> with you. But, you know, you, you realize it's your safe space, right? You can say those things. Yes. And you don't have to explain yourself when you're talking to another parent. Exactly. They just know. It's amazing how different all the diseases can be. And yet the experience is so similar. You know, for for you with Ford, uh, I can't imagine that our symptoms line up very well with Mankey's disease, but I can already hear from your stories how much our lives are kind of on a similar path. Yes. Yeah. I don't think you have to share anything health wise. I mean, even if it's just a child missing a pinky finger, I think we can all connect somehow. Yeah. So I kind of want to move into the fact that you're a huge part in helping to change the way the world looks at our children. And you've co-created the Rare Disease Film Festival, which is amazing. (laughs) Thank you. Tell me a little bit about why you started it and what's going on? Yeah. After I wrote that first blog post piece, it was on the mighty and then Global Genes was good enough to name it the rare patient story of the year. And so that made me think there's some value in this. You know, it, it serves a purpose, not just for me, but for others. And I had a bit of a background in filmmaking, mostly film marketing for Hollywood stuff, but I'd made a few films and I thought instead of just writing about this, maybe I should make a film about Mankey's disease. And I did that in 2015 and it's called Mankey's disease, finding help and hope because I wanted to change what the Google results were. When you get a diagnosis like this, you don't just read the horrible prognosis that says your child will live three to 10 years. You might also find this video that says, yes, the child won't live that long, but 
enjoy those years. And here's some people who can tell you how they've done it. So there were my own family and two other families in the film. Just to put things into context, I couldn't change how bad the news was, but I think it's reassuring to see that people have a life and actually enjoy parts or most of that life. So that was the film. And then having made the film, the next step was to try to figure out where it could be shown and what the best audience is and the best ways to get it seen. And of course, posting it online is useful and it gets you to a certain point. But then I met Bo Bigelow at Global Jeans and he was doing similar things with his podcast and his blog. And he was talking about making a film. And I brought up this issue of uh, where the best places to show films like this might be. And there are some film festivals that focus on health topics or science topics, but nobody was focused on rare disease. And it kind of was that light bulb moment. Like, well, if it doesn't exist and we want it to exist, maybe we should create it. And we were never sure it was that great an idea. You know, maybe it's way too narrow and way too niche and it just wouldn't work. But then in hindsight, we did one in 2015 in Boston. It went very well and people responded to it, you know, enthusiastically. We sold out a lot of our five out of our seven screenings. Nice. And yeah, we had about seven hours worth of films you could watch. So we were surprised, you know, how many films were out there, how many people wanted to attend. In hindsight, maybe we shouldn't have been surprised because we're talking about a very large minority population in the United States. You know, one in 10 people, that's 30 million people. You know, if you set up a film festival for any other cultural minority, you know, there's always the Italian American Film Festival or the Chinese American Film Festival. They don't have numbers like 30 million. And if you add, you know, the caregiver that goes with that affected person, is it 60 million? I mean, so in some ways, looking back, it's no surprise that there was an appetite for this. And we just, yeah. we just tapped into it. Is the video that you're talking about that you did originally the one I watched and messaged you about where uh, you and your wife uh, were sitting with Luke and then there was another young man and his mom? Yes, yes. There is a family in Australia and uh, that was Miles and his mom, Tamara. She runs Mankey's Foundation Australia. And then there was a family a little bit south of us. We're in upstate New York and that was uh, Graydon and his dad. Unfortunately, since 2015, when that film was made, Lucas is the only surviving boy of the three. So that was, that's tough. That's tough. My heart goes out to that. The whole community, the whole monkeys community. I mean, every single time it's got to be just like, it's a loss for everyone. It is. What I noticed when I watched that film and I mentioned it to you when we talked on the phone, I didn't realize that you created this video so people could figure out or find that there was happiness in this type of diagnosis and journey itself. And I messaged you and told you that what I saw and what I felt the entire time I was watching it was how much love there was in the video and how everyone's eyes were sparkling when they were talking about their kids, <laughs> even though they're talking about devastating diagnosis. That was secondary. It was so obvious how amazing the families are and how much love there is between you all. And um, you got your point across and I didn't even know that was your mission. Thanks. I, I, I do think that this, you know, challenge of raising a child with a deadly disease, you know, can force you to be your best self, you know, if on your good days, you know, and so, uh, 
Yeah, the, I'm, I'm glad that comes through in the film. There was a moment, um, I'm telling a sad story. Uh, most of the movie is a sad story, but, um, and Lucas is seated, seated beside me and I'm talking to camera and telling a sad story and he starts laughing. <laughs> and I almost reshot the thing because I thought this is not the mood. The mood is sad story <laughs> and you're laughing. And then as I rewatched that film, that is absolutely the point. That's the point of yes. the whole thing is that in the face of this, you can laugh and be happy. And I think our kids remind us of that most of all. Absolutely. I, I love hearing Ford at the end of every one of your podcasts. I, <sighs> I, I get to each one and I think, oh, I, I know what's coming. I've heard this before. I know exactly what his laugh sounds like. Maybe I'll skip it. I know the podcast is pretty much done at this point. And then I don't skip it. And I'm so glad I don't. It just moves me to tears and, and smiles every time. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, these kids are amazing. It doesn't matter how bad you feel or how angry you are. You can always look at them and just be like, oh, OK, here I am. <laughs> it's it's very cool. It puts you in your place daily, I think. Yeah, Lucas loves to put us in our place. He um, <laughs> is is not very communicative other than his laughing or his noises of unhappiness. And if we are doing something that's hard work, like, um, you know, stretching too high to reach something on a top shelf or hit your thumb with a hammer, he'll laugh his head off at us. And... <laughs> It's a really nice kind of reset button because you probably didn't need to be as upset as you were about hitting your thumb with a hammer. And he's kind of taking you down a peg, you know? Oh, that's so funny. I always say that, uh, yeah, Ford is nonverbal, but I have more conversations in a day with that kid than I do anyone else. And I bet you feel the same way with Lucas. Yeah, I, my wife says that I think people respond really well to Lucas. And, and that's great. I think, you know, he's generally smiling and laughing, or at least got some sparkle in his eyes and, and people kind of respond to that. But my wife will say that she thinks that he's a, a reminder to people that as bad as any of us have it, you could still manage a smile. Probably you could, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's just a, a way to recalibrate your life. You're like, well, I thought I had it bad, but look at this kid. Mm, yes. They're teachers. They're definitely teachers. Yeah. Uh, I want to circle back to your film festival because I'm fascinated and I want to come sure. to one. Yeah, please do. The next one is in May, uh, May 18th this year in New York City. How do people get tickets to it? They just go online? Yeah, uh, they won't be available till a few weeks before the event, but uh, we usually... Uh, certainly on our website, uh, rarediseasefilmfestival.com, and then usually through Eventbrite. Do you have any favorite films so far? Are you allowed to pick one? Are there any films that families yeah, listening well, would have, know about that have been in your festival? I have a ton of favorite films. One is on Hunter Syndrome. It's called Finn. It's not directed by John Muter, but John Muter is one of the filmmakers, and it's his family story. Finn is his son. And it's just so heartbreakingly beautiful. It's so well made and they're so honestly open about their experience. At the time of making the film, Finn was three years old and they're, they're looking at a limited lifetime with their child and what that is going to mean for them. Another one, when we started the festival, we knew Bo would have a film and I had a film and a few friends of ours had films. So we knew we had a handful to pick from to, to get things started. We weren't sure how many would be out there, but I had run a, 
different film festival prior to this, and I knew about a film called Our Curse, which in 2015, same year I made my film, was nominated for an Oscar for short film. And it's a Polish filmmaker, Thomas Lewinsky, and his son, Theo, has CCHS, which is also known as Dean's Curse. And it's a terrible disease because when you fall asleep, you stop breathing. And if you don't get on a respirator or you don't monitor your you know, get on a CPAP and a BiPAP and things that will force you to breathe, well, you don't survive. So that's what they had to face with their son. And, and it's just a beautiful, sorrowful portrayal of that. And I'm really thrilled that we showed that in 2017 in our festival. He has now made another film on the topic of CCHS on Dean's Curse, but this one's not a documentary. This one's a narrative and it's uh, taking a look at what a grown man. So I imagine he didn't tell me this, but I imagine he's sort of thinking ahead to his son's adult life or someone like mm -hmm. his son. So how does a grown man face this trying to get through stuff the rest of us take for granted and knowing that you have to be careful of your own sleep and it's, it's a haunting, it's got like the tension of an Alfred Hitchcock film. It's, oh my gosh. Yeah. So I can't wait to show people that at our next festival. And it's a nice sort of bookend from what we had in our first festival to this next one. Wow. So cool. How does a family maybe enter your film festival? Like how do they go about creating something to submit? Yeah, we have kind of a range of films from the ones where people just point their cell phones at themselves and tell a story. And that's, you know, maybe not the best way to do it, but it's a valid way. It's, it's, we have films like that in the festival. It, it's, at that point, really about the power of the story you're telling and not so much the way you're telling the story. But we also have people that have found a local filmmaker, you know, at, at some level, you know, maybe somewhat amateur or maybe a seasoned professional that's willing to do this as a passion project, as a, as a work of charity and maybe requiring very little or no budget to do that. And then there are people that are clearly seasoned professionals and well-funded and maybe at the end credits, you see, thank you to certain biopharma corporation for your money. <laughs> you know, so there are those films too, that clearly have a nice big budget. And sometimes they have uh, an Oscar winning filmmaker involved and the focus is perfect. And the soft focus is gorgeous and the music and the sound effects and everything's just high caliber. And, you know, you can tell by how many names are in the credits at the end of the film. <laughs> you know, when you watch any of your favorite film, you think of those hundreds of people and each one of them has an important job to do. And I always tell independent filmmakers and young filmmakers, you need to think about how many of those jobs you're not going to do, or are you going to do them all yourself? Or do you have people to cover some of them or most of them? And, you know, some of maybe you could skip the craft service department, but you know, <laughs> nobody's skipping the craft service. If exactly I'm right. Not, not for too many <laughs> days. Anyway, you're getting an angry crew, but a lot of them are pretty important. And most of us, if you're not a filmmaker, you don't exactly think like, well, how important was that sound setup or that lighting setup? So one of the things we're going to do in New York at our next festival for the first time, we're going to have a sort of a hands-on workshop with seasoned filmmakers that can give people tips and say, you know, even if you can't afford good lights, at least position yourself this way in front of a window with a bounce card. And, and then maybe you can, you know, improve your lighting situation that way. What a cool idea. Are you going to film that presentation? Oh, no, that's a good idea. We should do that. Yes, <laughs> yeah. you should put it on the list. Yeah.
Awesome. So <laughs> this goes so cool. You can't wear makeup to this film festival. Do you have that in like on your ticket sales? Don't just don't. People are just going to be crying. Oh, I see. Yeah. Well, we do. We give away uh, little small boxes of tissues to everybody. <laughs> we really do. It's become important. People kind of expect it now. Yeah, you won't, you won't get it. through an hour of these films. Yeah. <laughs> so have you found any like doctors and researchers that maybe come to the film festival or see a film later that have decided to sort of pick up one of these rare diseases and study it or pass it off to someone who's interested? Anything cool like that happened that you know of? Yes. And, and that's actually the goal, right? We didn't want to just, you know, show these films and have people say, oh, what a shame, too bad, let's go home and go on with our lives. We wanted to structure it so that people would take this new information that they got from the films and start new conversations and maybe compare notes and say, oh, my researcher is doing something on this other gene that might relate to your gene. And now we can connect you and maybe move the ball a little bit on treatments and cures. And so in our first festival in Boston, a woman named Janice Creeden, who's great, she appeared in one of the films, which was uh, called Rare and Common. And then she spoke on a panel that we had and her son is still undiagnosed and she's struggling with that. She thinks he's the only one in the world. And that was on our day one. And our day two, a CEO from a diagnostics company spoke. And he was talking about how he could diagnose rare diseases and find other people with those rare diseases. And she stood up and asked a question and said, do you think you could help my son? And he said, yes, I do. So oh that was amazing. She was in tears. We were overjoyed. And then this past festival in San Francisco in November, a woman with Fraser syndrome made a film about her condition. She went all around the um, Europe and, and the States interviewing other people that have it too. And when she was done with her Q&A after showing her film at our festival, a geneticist came up to her and said, I think I can help. Oh my gosh. So those wow. are exactly the things we want to happen, you know? How exciting. Yeah. It's so cool. I'm so excited about what you and Bo are doing. It's amazing. You're contributing even so much more than I could have imagined as a parent raising these kids. Because, man, sometimes it's all I can do, you know? Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, and I, I question, too, you know, if I, I say I do this for my son, right? Or at least I do it in his name. But then the more time and energy I put into this is maybe less time that I'm cuddling him on the couch or the things that would really be a priority to him, right? Well, I think things like this make us better parents, you know? So yeah. I think there is a weird balance to that idea. Definitely. So I know you named Lucas after Luke Skywalker from Star Wars, right? Right. Lucas, think of baby Yoda in the Mandalorian because <laughs> it's the cutest thing I've ever seen. It is the cutest thing. Disney really hit it out of the park. Absolutely. So <laughs> Lucas is named after Luke Skywalker and Lucas, George Lucas, right? And then we discovered after we named him and after he was born that probably a, a more literal translation of Lucas is bringer of light. And if you see his eyes, they sparkle and everybody says so. It's not just me being a biased dad. So we really like that example my wife said where he can be a, a light, you know, he can be a he can he can bring a spark to people. And so I think he's really well named. As for Baby Yoda, I don't think he's 
it's been on while Lucas has been in the room, but I don't think he has necessarily responded to it. Whereas his mm-hmm. eight-year-old brother, who's in you know typical health, he loves the Mandalorian. He loves Baby Yoda. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big hit here for sure. Just I'm not sure how much Lucas has tapped into it, but yeah. Ugh, so cute. Well, I just have one more question for you, Daniel. What is some advice or words of wisdom that you might give to a family who's in the beginning of getting a diagnosis? Yeah, I think, you know, the the closer you are to the diagnosis, probably those are the hard parts, the hardest parts. It gets a little bit easier with some time. And I think one of the things that helps is when you find your people. And that's probably going to be a Facebook group or if you're lucky, maybe a live in person kind of group. But certainly seek out what that community is. And they're not going to have all the answers, but they're going to at least understand where your questions are coming from. And like we talked about, you know, with the differences of mutation, even if you find the exact same disease community, I know I was disappointed that it wasn't predictive, right? What had happened for their boys wasn't necessarily what's going to happen for mine. So it wasn't the source of all the answers, but it is such a source of comfort. It's still your best source of answers. It's more reliable often than the doctors you're dealing with. In fact, in the documentary I made, one of the the mom in Australia says she hears from doctors that say, ask your support group, ask your other Minkies parents. They're the ones who are going to know. Yeah, the community is huge. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me and letting us know a little bit about Luke and your film festival. I can't wait to share our conversation with everyone and eventually come to one of your events. Yeah, I want that to happen too. I can't wait. And thank you. Keep doing this. This is such important work. I love this podcast. Thank you. If anything, this is therapeutic for me. So something's going good. Good. All right. Thanks, Daniel. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people. And please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story, or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you. (laughs) 